Hello everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology, and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. I'm still thinking about the solar eclipse that was visible in its totality in North America earlier this week. I didn't see the eclipse. I ended up watching the NASA live stream, which was really interesting. (laughs) For one thing, I got to watch the eclipse happening in real time six or seven times. And I also got a little window into the energy of the crowds of people who were gathered in various places to watch this event. The eclipse is truly an awe-inspiring experience. I made a journey down to Oaxaca, Mexico in the early 90s to witness a total eclipse of the sun, and I really didn't expect much, and I have to tell you, it was an experience that I will never, ever forget. So I revisited an essay that Annie Dillard wrote called Total Eclipse. Maybe you saw it. It was recirculating online. It was first published in 1982, and it's worth a read if you haven't discovered it. In this essay, Dillard tells the story of her experience of a total solar eclipse that she viewed in Washington State. And like me, Dillard went not really expecting to be impressed, but in one memorable sentence, she conveys the shocking profundity of what she witnessed. She writes, Seeing a partial eclipse bears the same relation to seeing a total eclipse as kissing a man does to marrying him. (laughs) Dillard details the changes in light and color, the beauty and the sense of this is wrong (laughs) that is felt deep in the body when darkness descends. I want to pluck a few more of her words and sentences out of her essay to share with you. She writes, The world which lay under darkness and stillness following the closing of the lid was not the world we know. You have seen photographs of the sun taking during a total eclipse. The corona fills the print. All of those photographs were taken through telescopes. The lenses of telescopes and cameras can no more cover the breadth and scale of the visual array then language can cover the breadth and simultaneity of internal experience. You see the wide world swaddled in darkness. You see a vast breadth of hilly land. You see a sprawl of black sky and blue sky together with unfamiliar stars in it, some barely visible bands of cloud, and over there, a small white ring. The ring is as small as one goose in a flock of migrating geese, if you happen to notice a flock of migrating geese. Dillard's essay lends a lot of significance to the realization that we depend so completely on this regular movement of a body that is at once huge 
and also appears so, so small in the sky. I think it's safe to say that there have never been a a person, there's never been a community of people, a culture that didn't have a story about explanations and meanings attributed to a solar eclipse. We have, as human beings, have been accurately predicting them for millennia. But some of the past stories that we told about why this happened included things like the gods being angry at us, that there was a demon or a dragon or an animal, like a wolf, eating the sun. Or maybe the sun and the moon, who have often been imagined as a couple. Sometimes the sun is the male and the moon is female, and sometimes that's reversed. That the sun and the moon are a couple. Maybe they're a married couple or maybe they're brother and sister, and they have something to work out. They're fighting or maybe they're coupling and producing more children, that is, stars and planets, to beautify the night sky. In some cultures, solar eclipses have been the work of tricksters who are messing with us. And some cultures believe that whatever it is that's going on up there is so sacred that we aren't meant to observe it. Around many of these old stories, there is fear and a foreboding of evil. The word eclipse from the Greek eclipsis means to abandon. And I wonder if we uh, cast an amused eye on some of these old stories because with our current understanding of the mechanics of the solar system, This idea that the sun may suddenly just stop rising seems absurd. And that fear is not one that we live with. But while I don't want to be a doomsday predictor, uh, anything can happen. And there's also, in that uh, fear of losing the sun, a deep and I would say more accurate awareness of the importance of the sun. In losing our sense of consequence, we seem to also have lost our sense of value. The sun is life-giving warmth and light. It is what sustains us. (laughs) So taking a moment to contemplate that while we're watching something like an eclipse or or watching a sunrise or sunset is valuable. There's a moment there to connect with what we really depend upon, the sun and the moon and the earth. There are movements that create the forces and the cycles we call seasons and weathers and tides. These are more real, aren't they, than many of the goals and the plans and the worries of our everyday busyness. And when I was thinking about how we lend significance to events like the eclipse, whether or not we allow them to be significant. I found myself also contemplating the fact that this eclipse took place while the sun was in Leo, the astrological period that we're in right now is Leo, and the planet associated with Leo is the sun. 
just as, for example, Saturn is associated with the astrological sign of Capricorn. Now, regardless of the story that you tell about astrology and synchronicities of this sort, the correspondences and images and interpretations layered and refined by our ancestors stretching back millennia are worth some meditation. The sun as lion is something that you can find in a number of cultures. One very old example is in Egyptian mythology with the goddess Sekhmet. The creator god, Ra, gets upset with human beings because they forget what their life depends on. They stop following the natural order of things, and he decides to punish them for their disobedience and creates Sekhmet from a glare, the glare in his eye. She's a lioness, and she is sent down to earth to wipe out the human race, and she makes a really good start on that. Lions are powerful and skillful hunters. And part of the way through this process, Ra sees what's going on and decides maybe he doesn't want to wipe everybody out. But when he tries to contain Sekhmet, he can't do so. She's bloodthirsty. She's become obsessed with the power that she possesses. And so Ra constructs a ruse. He has the plains flooded with beer that's been dyed with pomegranate juice. And when Sekhmet sees this, she thinks that it's blood. She thinks it is a blood-filled plain. And as she drinks the beer, (laughs) she loses her desire to fight and calms down. And Ra is able to negotiate with her and convince her that she's done enough. The Egyptian people saw this goddess as a goddess of war, and also a protector. They understood that she brought destruction and healing. There's a majesty and an awe and a power and a regality, a nobleness, a generosity of spirit and vision that is wrapped up in this image of sun as lion, as Leo, what was eclipsed. And, of course, it has a big shadow. I found myself thinking about this shadow because I was horrified, and I am unfortunately not surprised, to see this eclipse very rapidly be labeled as the Great American Eclipse. I just find something rather shabby in this relentless tendency on the part of Americans right now to attach the word to great to anything that we think is going on here. But while I was thinking about that, I came across a South African story that I want to tell you called The Flying Lion. And it feels appropriate to me on this theme of the lion and the lion as the sun and power and opportunities presented to reflect by the eclipse And even maybe that notion of abandoning, abandoning something. So here's the story.
the flying lion. Once upon a time, back in the old days, Lion, some called him Uncle Lion, was able to fly, and because he could fly, nothing could escape him. His wings were not feathered wings like the wings of a bird. They were like the wings of Brother Bat, thick skin and ribs. They were big and thick and strong. And when he wasn't flying, Uncle Lion kept them folded up by his sides. When he was angry, he flared them out and flapped them up and down and frightened people. And when he wanted to rise from the ground, he spread them out and flapped them, first very slowly and then faster and faster and faster, until he made a big wind and sailed away into the air. It was a very frightening sight, this flying lion. And of course, when he was high up above the earth, he would fly along and look down for something to kill. And if he saw a herd of antelope or gazelles, he would fly along until he was just over them, pick out a nice fat one, stretch out his iron claws, fold his wings and whoosh, swoop down and grab the animal and carry it away before it even had time to jump. That is the way that Uncle Lion hunted in the old days. And few could escape him. There was only one thing that Uncle Lion was afraid of, and that was that the bones of the animals that he caught and ate would be broken into pieces. Nobody knew why this was why he was so insistent on guarding those bones. And everyone was too frightened of him to ask. So it remained a mystery. And Flying Lion kept all of these bones at his home. And since he was left often to go hunting, he had crows, a pair of crows, at home to look after them at all times. These were not the usual black crows that we see all around. These were white crows, white crows, the special kind that are only born once in many years. As soon as a white crow baby was found, it was immediately taken to Uncle Lion. Those were his orders, and he kept it. He kept it in the mountains. He kept it with him, and when it got big and the old white crows died, then the next eldest would become the watchman. And so there were always white crows to watch the bones when Uncle Lion went hunting. But one day when he was away, Big Bullfrog came along, hippity-hoppiting, hippity-hoppiting. And he came up to the crows and said, why are you sitting here all day, white-headed crows? And the white crows, well, we sit here to look after the bones of Uncle Lion. Oh, it must be really dull sitting here, said the bullfrog. You must be very tired of this routine. Why don't you fly away for a little while and stretch your wings? And I'll tell you what, I'll sit here and do your job. I'll look after the bones. The white crows were a little nervous, but this sounded pretty good, and so they looked around, they looked up and down and this way and that way, and 
Yeah, there was no no sign of Uncle Lion. He probably wouldn't be back for a while. And so they thought, hmm, this is our chance to get away for a fly. So they said, craw, craw. And they stretched out their wings and flew away. Don't hurry back, Big Bullfrog yelled after them. You just stay away as long as you like. I will take care of the bones. As soon as they were gone, Big Bullfrog thought to himself, now I'm going to find out why Uncle Lion doesn't want those bones to be broken. And he went from one end to the other of the lion's house, and he broke all of the bones that he could find. When he finished, he hopped away as fast as he could. He had nearly gotten back to his dam when the white crows overtook him. They had gone back to the mountain and gone back to Uncle Lion's house, and they saw all of those broken bones, and they were frightened. Craw, craw, they said. Big Brother Bullfrog, what is your problem? How could you do that? Uncle Lion is going to be so angry, he is going to bite off our heads, and without a head, how are we going to live? Big Bullfrog pretended that he didn't hear them. He hopped as fast as he could and kept hopping towards his dam, and the crows followed him, yelling at him and complaining, and they said, you know, it's no good hopping away, Bullfrog. Uncle Lion's going to find you wherever you are, and with his iron claws, boom, he's going to kill you with one blow. Old Big Bullfrog didn't take any notice of this. He hopped on, and when he got to his dam... He sat at the edge of the water and blinked his big, beautiful eyes in his ugly old head and said, When Uncle Lion comes home, you tell him that I'm the one who broke the bones. You can tell him. You tell him I live in this dam, and if he wants to see me, he has to come here. The white crows were very angry with Bullfrog, and they flew down quickly to peck at him, but they missed. They only got their beaks into the soft mud because Big Bullfrog had already dove down into the dam, and all the white crows could see were the rings around the place where he'd made a hole in the water. Uncle Lion, meanwhile, was far away, waiting for food, waiting for food, and he finally saw a herd of zebras, and he tried to fly up so that he could just swooped down on one of them, but he couldn't do it. He tried again, but he couldn't do it. He spread out his wings and he flapped them, but they were very weak. And then Uncle Lion knew that there had to be something wrong at his house, and he was very angry. He roared and he roared. He heard thunder rolling away, and the earth seemed to shake. It was a terrible, terrible noise. And he roared, and he roared, but all of his roaring didn't help him. And finally, he had to just walk home. And when he got home, he found those poor white crows. They were nearly dead with fright. As soon as they found out that he could no longer fly, well, they lost a lot of their fear of him. What have you done to make my wings so weak? 
he roared, and they said, Well, Uncle, while you were away, someone came and broke all the bones. Well, you were supposed to watch them, he said. It's your fault that they're broken, and to punish you, I'm going to bite your stupid white heads off. Uncle Lion sprang towards them, but now they just flew away and sailed around in the air over his head. They could get out of his reach. Ha, ha. Uncle Lion can't catch us. The wings are broken, and now your wings are useless. Now men and animals can live again without your tyranny. And they flew away to tell everyone the good news. Uncle Lion sprang into the air, first on one side and then to the other, striking at them, trying to catch them, but he couldn't reach them. And when he found out that his efforts were all in vain, he rolled around on the ground and he roared and roared in frustration. And the white crows flew around him and flew around him and wing, you know, just in big rings in the sky. And finally they cawed, cawed, cawed down to him and said, The one who broke the bones said, If Uncle Lion wants me, he can come and look for me at the dam. And then they flew away. Well, the lion thought, I didn't get the crows, but I can get a hold of the one who broke those bones and ruined me. I'm going to go get him. So he went down to the dam. And there was old Bullfrog sitting in the sun at the water's edge. Uncle Lion crept up very slowly, quietly, behind Bullfrog. I've got him, he thought, and he made a spring. But Bullfrog said, Ho! and dived into the dam and came up on the other side and sat there blinking in the sun. The lion ran around as hard as he could and was just going to spring again when Bullfrog dived in again and came up on the other side. And so it went on, back and forth, back and forth. Every time the lion almost caught him and the bullfrog dived in and called out, Ho! from the other side of the dam. And finally, Uncle Lion saw that it was no use trying to catch the bullfrog. So he went home to see if he could mend the broken bones. But he couldn't. And from that day, he could no longer fly. He could only walk on his iron claws. And from that day, too, He learned to creep quietly after his game. He still catches other creatures and eats them. But he's not as dangerous now as when he could fly. The white crows no longer speak. They only say, craw, craw. But the old bullfrog still goes hoppity, hoppity, hoppity around the dam. And he sits there laughing when he hears Uncle Lion roar. What is this lion, the lion as Leo, as the sun, in its exalted form? I've used words like regal and noble and greatness and generosity, generosity of spirit and vision. And we see that, of course, the lion has great power, but the power alone doesn't give us that image, does it? What is lion without greatness of spirit? What is lion without that courageous and open heart? Let's not forget the heart. James Hillman felt that that was the essential kernel in our image of Leo the lion. The heart and its passion, its courage, 
and its intelligence. Hillman said, and I agree, that the heart is the seat of imagination. It's a place where we know not only or merely through facts, but also through feeling, through that combination. There's something poetic in the heart. The heart is where we have our aesthetic response. And the upshot of it is that heart intelligence is an intelligence of value. The heart intelligence tells us what is truly of value, what matters. Many stories have been told through over the decades <laughs> with Western anthropologists and others in conversation with Native and Indigenous peoples who make the compare and contrast between the consciousness conditioned by Western culture, where thinking with the mind, with the head, and its disembodied abstractions is the rule, as opposed to thinking with the heart. Intuitively, many of us understand this distinction and these two ways of thinking. Western science has also experimented with and discovered that the heart does, in fact, have an intelligence. There's kind of an interesting melding of the poetic or psychological and scientific truths of this intelligence in something called scalar heart connection, a process that Stephen Lindstedt developed to connect with your heart's innate knowing. And if you're interested in that, you can either check out my interview with Stephen Lindstedt that's in the Myth of the Mojave Archives or Google that, Scalar Heart Connection. It's a way of showing up. It's a way of presenting yourself and acting, being in this exalted Leo sun, the consciousness of the noble lion. And although some are born under the sign of Leo, and some of us are gifted maybe with a certain familiarity with that way of being by virtue of personality or culture, it's something that we can all adopt. It's a capacity that we can all develop. One of the ways we can do this is is through a judicious use of power. In his book, Raised in the Shadow, Philip Rosenberg wrote this poem called Advice to a Father, which speaks to this. Advice to a Father. When you raise your voice, you're going in the wrong direction. Volume and power are related inversely. Go down instead. Slip beneath the surface. The deeper you go, the quieter it becomes the easier to hear and to be heard. Be like the lion. He settles the issue with a yawn. Another gateway that I'm exploring into my own capacity to develop my lion heart is in the appreciation of the opportunities I'm given every day by this amazing, beautiful world to feel awe, to feel wonder. Staying open to the beauty and the wonder of the world, that's a choice that most of us have to make at some point as adults. That's why I exhort you in every program to keep the mystery in your life alive, 
because the cosmos provides endless opportunities for awe, for awe that keeps us connected to the realities, the realities that sustain our lives. Sometimes the earth broadcasts her grandeur in broad strokes. We go to places like the Grand Canyon, or we look up at the Milky Way, or we witness an event like the solar eclipse. Other opportunities are fleeting. They are found in the world of the mundane, a word that we now commonly use to describe something dull and banal. But it comes from the Latin mundi of the earth, the earth showing herself. So I want to close with this poem by Billy Collins that I read only yesterday. It's called Gold, and you can find it in a collection titled Aimless Love, New and Selected Poems. Gold. I don't want to make too much of this, but because the bedroom faces east across the lake here in Florida, when the sun begins to rise and reflects off the water, the whole room is suffused with a kind of golden light that might travel at dawn on the summer solstice, the length of a passageway in a megalithic tomb. Again, I don't want to exaggerate, but it reminds me of a brand of light that could illuminate the walls of a hidden chamber full of treasure, pearls and gold coins overflowing the silver platters. I feel like comparing it to the fire that Aphrodite lit in the human eye so as to make it possible for us to perceive the other three elements. But the last thing I want to do is risk losing your confidence by appearing to lay it on too thick. Let's just say that the morning light here would bring to any person's mind the rings of light that Dante deploys in the final cantos of the Paradiso to convey the presence of God while bringing the divine comedy to a stunning climax and leave it at that. I don't want to risk losing your confidence by appearing to lay it on too thick, but this is a marvelous, wonderful world. And if we can connect to our capacity for awe, it will help us develop our generosity of spirit. The world needs the Leo lion heart with all of its nobility and generosity, with its imagination and appreciation of value. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. And if you find something of value here, please join the community on Bandcamp. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy mythmaking and keep the mystery in your life alive.